Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, one of the most important and informative conversations you may hear about all things COVID-19, from the vaccines to boosters, masks, ADE, where we are today, and a look back at some major public health mistakes. Some of you have asked, and I suppose a lot of you probably wonder, how do I develop good sources and reliable information? Well, sometimes I already have good sources from the past, but in the case of COVID-19, initially it was impossible for me to know whose analyses were going to prove to be accurate, and I didn't pretend to know the information. But I consulted many, many scientists and listened to them, and I read material from public health officials, and I read a lot of research and studies and differing views. And how it works is over time, one can begin to look back and see which information proved to be accurate and which information proved to be inaccurate. That way you can start to build reliable sourcing on a new topic. It's a process. And now coming up upon two years of COVID, I have developed some trusted, reliable sources. And conversely, I've also identified those who've proven to provide incomplete or false information to include Sadly to say, CDC at times, Dr. Peter Hotez, the New York Times, major news publications, and a disturbing phenomenon that I've seen, those who've proven to be accurate have often gotten controversialized and banned from social media and the internet and censored. Well, a lot of you have seen the same thing, and I know this is part of why there's a crisis in confidence in the advice that you're getting in the media and from public health officials. It's understandable. It certainly doesn't mean all their information is wrong, but you're left skeptical of everything when you see them disseminating one-sided or inaccurate information. Today, you're going to hear from one of the scientists who I initially read about and consulted early on who's proven to be responsible and accurate in important instances, but has suffered the propaganda campaign that so many scientists find themselves suffering when the government or corporate entities controlling the narrative attack those who have data or scientific information or views that are contrary to what the powerful interests want you to see and believe. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a medical doctor and a PhD, a professor of medicine, senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, and he has many other credentials. I know you have a lot of questions about COVID-19 that you feel are not getting fully answered elsewhere. You're getting conflicting information. Some of it defies common sense and known data. Well, we're going to ask Dr. Bhattacharya about a lot of those questions today. As always, I'm not giving medical advice. And on vaccination, I'm neither in the camp of what you would call pro-vaccine nor anti-vaccine. Though, as you know by now, reporters and scientists who identify or report on safety issues with vaccination are falsely labeled anti-vaccine through a very powerful propaganda campaign that's now going on something like 20 years old. I say gather all the information you can. So much is changing by the day. A lot is still unknown. Go to cdc.gov, read and listen to the government's recommendations. Be sure and look for scientific studies and data, including that which may not fall in line with the government or vaccine industry's advice. And consult your own trusted physicians to help make your decisions. Here's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. 
did you have any notion at the beginning of all of this, we would still be dealing with COVID, you know, almost going on two years after we first heard about it? I mean, it, it, uh, I, I knew from an epidemiological perspective that it takes some time for a disease to become endemic in a population. And what I anticipated at the beginning was that we would follow the standard protocols for dealing with respiratory epidemics like this, which are something very close to the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, the idea being protect the vulnerable, try to disrupt normal life as little as possible while protecting the vulnerable, and don't panic the population. Instead, try to quickly develop treatments, vaccines, whatnot, as, as best you can in the middle of it. But disrupting society in the old pandemic plan was thought to like cause more considerable harm, which is kind of seen. So I was shocked when we first in March launched into the lockdowns because I didn't think it was possible that uh, the, the public health would, would, would land on this. And I initially thought that the, the lockdowns wouldn't last very long. You know, I guess I'm, my, my friends call me hopelessly optimistic. So I, um, so I kept saying, okay, this has got to, this craziness has to end. But um, sometime in, um, I'd say like May or June of last year, uh, I, it became clear that this was not going to end very soon. Because of what we were doing in part? Yeah, in large part because of what we were doing. We, we had panicked the population. And once you panic the population, it's really hard to unpanic, to, to unring that bell. Let me ask you what you think in retrospect might be behind that, because public health officials have similar training, I assume, about how to handle pandemics and viruses. And why are so many of them on a different page or at least the ones in charge of making decisions and making these recommendations? Why are they on such a different page, do you think? I mean, I think initially in, say, January and February, they, they were all actually saying things that were consistent with the old pandemic plan, you know, even even Fauci was saying things like, you know, we, we should uh, protect the vulnerable. He was saying completely reasonable things. Many of the of the uh, the people who have been pushing lockdowns were saying very reasonable things in January and February, including, you know, like closing the borders is not likely to have a big effect. Closing schools is a mistake. Those, those kinds of things. In March, for reasons I still do not fully understand, a lot of those officials turned on a dime. I think there's two sort of things that I've, two reasons I've come, come up with to try to explain this and, you know, turn on a dime in favor of lockdowns. One is that they thought, they, they looked at the response in China and Italy, compared them and saw, thought to themselves, well, look, uh, China locked down for a short period of time in, in January, February, 2020, um, and the disease went away. Italy didn't, and you had this catastrophic outcome. Well, we should do what China did. I mean, that's one, and so does like policy copying. Uh, the other is, I think, uh, and this is related to this, is that they had a, an incorrect notion of this, of the, of, of both how deadly this disease is and also of how efficiently it spread. Ironically, I think they actually thought of it as a disease that didn't spread very efficiently. So it was like when, um, I think the first acknowledgement there was human to human transmission came sometime in January, 2020 you know, quite late. So they didn't think it was it spread very efficiently, but they thought it was very, very deadly. You know, the World Health Organization said it was like three or three or 4% case fatality rate. Both turned out to be wrong. The infection fatality rate for the disease turns out to be somewhere in the order of 0.2%, you know, 99.8% survival. With You're talking people. about that, to be clear, is that the rate among all people who fight COVID even asymptomatically and we don't know it? 
Is that among all people who get sick? Is that among the whole population? What is that? Yeah, so it's all, it's the, it's the first. It's this, this among all the people who get infected at all, whether symptomatic or asymptomatic, the infection fatality rate turns out to be 0.2% and 99.8% survival. From this is from a hundred or more studies uh, around the world, uh, published by the World Health Organization. Uh, Johnny Needy's on basically these seroprevalence studies that I that I worked on in the early days. The well, other if it big- wasn't a case fatality rate. If you were including the entire population, it would be even tinier than that. Yeah, I mean the case fatality rate is among people who are identified with COVID, and that depends on how well you identify COVID cases, right? So the denominator there is sort of smaller than the truth when you um, when you have a, you know, a, a situation where you don't have a lot of testing. You have, even when you have a lot of testing, it's still the case that we're not identifying, maybe we're identifying a third of actual infections. This thing spreads very, very rapidly, uh, very, very easily. And many, many people, uh, in fact, there's this huge age gradient, right? A thousand fold difference where the oldest are much more likely to have a bad outcome from this disease than younger people. And younger people, kids tend to have very mild infections. They may not get identified or picked up. Um, so the infection fatality rate, that, that, that's a fact that comes out of a whole series of, of studies that looks for antibody prevalence in the population. And like I said, about near, nearly a hundred or more of these studies have now been done. And uh, it's 0.2% worldwide. Let, let me, that reminds me of something early on that I don't hear people talk about anymore. Dr. Fauci testified to Congress falsely that this was 10 times deadlier than flu. And yeah. at the same time, I had identified trying to find answers to these things early on, not knowing what the facts really were. He had written about the same time in a scholarly journal, the opposite. He had said this was similar to a bad flu season. So at the same time, he's testifying to one thing publicly to Congress. There was something quite different published in a scholarly journal, which I think turned out to be more accurate. I mean, that that testimony to Congress that Fauci gave, I mean, I don't know if he was lying or what, but it was certainly misleading. Um, he conflated in that testimony. And actually, even in one of his emails, he conflated the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate, which a good, a good epidemiologist would never do because the denominators are very, very different. Infection fatality rate is all of the people who got infected. The case fatality rate is the, among the, is all the people who are identified as having been infected. But when you're not so testing- Early on, not being an epidemiologist, I think before I met you or read, read some of your work for the first time, I wrote about this. And again, I'm not the smartest kid in the room. I don't understand why other public health officials and physicians weren't flagging the same thing. I was really surprised by that. I, I mean, I, 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 so, but like, so I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in March 2020, uh, arguing that we needed seroprevalence studies or uh, in order to, to actually know how many people were infected and to know actually how deadly the disease was. Because without that, you can't know. Actually, it turns out it impinges also on, on, the, uh, on the estimates of how widespread it is as well. Um, because if you, if you know how widespread it is, then you can know what the infection fatality rate is. You have the denominator. It's easy to see how many people died with it, but it's much harder to know how many people are infected. Um, so yeah, I think that the, the, the early days of the epidemic in March, 2020, a huge parts of the public health establishment misunderstood the nature of this disease. They, they thought it was far deadlier than it turned out to be and less widespread than it turned out to be or less easy to spread than it turned out to be. That led them to think that a lockdown, even a short lockdown, could actually help eliminate the disease or contain it to small small places where it would never where it wouldn't spread to the population at large. 
So they adopted a lockdown on, on with a mistake, like a fundamental mistake about the nature of this disease, how widespread it was and how easily it spread and how deadly it was. And uh, I mean, that's in March, 2020. Everyone remembers that. Uh, but it, but what happened was it, the mission, kind of, like they, they, they sold it as two weeks to slow the spread so you can protect hospital systems. Well, most hospital systems in the United States, at least, weren't nearly uh, overwhelmed. Many of them were actually running completely empty in anticipation of COVID patients never came. And the mission morphed from that to essentially what, what we have now is this incoherent thing where there's no end point. We just need to keep the disease low as if it were possible to do that for a disease that likely I think has affected, infected at least half, half, of, half of all humanity. Let me ask you two questions about the change in heart that you spoke about, sort of the radical change in March. Do you think there is any potential merit to the criticism that the vaccine industry was already beginning, of course, to develop solutions and answers, and that there was some influence on their part? Um, Absolutely, we know they pull strings within government, federal agencies, and so on. Do you think they saw some benefit to this strategy of locking people down whereby they would not get uh, their natural immunity? I asked the question because a government doctor who's very pro-vaccine and has proven right on a lot of things that I I won't name here, but early on told me, um, even though he advocated for the vaccine development and has even helped work on some of them, that it was a mistake to isolate because people needed to get their natural exposure and that most people would handle this virus without being sick at all or very sick. Um, So let me ask you about that conspiracy theory at all. Do you think there could be any merit to that? And then I have a second question along those lines. I don't, I I mean, I I read, for instance, Fauci's emails that were foiled by BuzzFeed and they're interesting. Um, The vaccine manufacturers uh, wrote to to Fauci, including J&J and I think uh, Pfizer folks or Moderna folks. And they wrote to him telling him that they were, were, I mean, essentially they, they wanted to help get the vaccines trials going and, and get the technology for vaccines. I mean, they arrived at, at, at these vaccine targets very, very quickly. And in part, I think because of prior work on, on, uh, on, on coronaviruses, yeah, they, they identified sort of vaccine targets. I mean, uh, remarkably quickly back in, back then, I didn't actually think it would be technically possible to, to develop a vaccine in a year. Well, part of the work we were funding and partnering with the communist Chinese on w- were developing vaccines to back coronaviruses. Yeah. So maybe that was giving them a head start. I, I and John, Johnson and Johnson funded EcoHealth Alliance during this time period. And they wouldn't tell me what that funding was intended for. But EcoHealth Alliance, of course, was involved in this research. So let's see, maybe that gave them a head start. I do think that there had been this pre-existing research. I don't know that they pushed the lockdowns. At least I didn't see that in, in the emails with Fauci. I think they mainly just wanted to develop the vaccine. And get- okay, here, here's the second thought then. About this time... I'm not sure exactly the date, but I learned subsequently what what I think we could assume all along. The government very early on analyzed the DNA and concluded that it likely came that it was man engineered. And I wondered if this sort of fear and the shutdown and all of that, which did seem sudden to me, too, was a reflection of some classified information that had been distributed that said, this thing is manufactured and either we don't know what it's going to do, or it could be this wild card we can't anticipate. And maybe that drove that change. 
I mean, I, I, I don't have access to classified information. I can tell you what I have seen, which is very, very interesting, I think. So there's, there's, there's a public history behind gain-of-function research that many people don't know, but it's really worth knowing. Um, the gain-of-function research basically has been going on for almost two decades. Um, it's, the, it's sort of gotten its heyday in uh, 2005 after the, after the, during the, the avian flu uh, sort of scare. And the idea was that if we fund research to see how many mutations are necessary to, to mutate this H5N1 virus so that it can infect human cells, we can get a sense of how likely it is that it will evolve in, in natural settings to infect humans. In 2012, there was a paper published uh, in part funded by the NIH uh, and Dr. Fauci's agency, NIAID, that uh, actually found that it took very few mutations to, to make the avian flu potentially infect uh, human cells. There was a huge brouhaha in the scientific community about how dangerous this research was. Like, you know, if you're engineering viruses that can, from, from, the, from nature and then make them infect humans, who knows what would happen, right? And in 2014, there was a pause put on, on, on this kind of research funding by the NIH with, an ex, with, with a proviso that Fauci and Collins, who were the head of the NIH, could say, well, this research is still worth doing, even though it's potentially dangerous. Fauci and Collins signed off on a number of projects, I think, including some of the work uh, that, that, uh, that came out of the Ego Health Alliance and in cooperation with Wuhan Labs. Um, in 2017, there was a formal lifting of that ban on gain-of-function research, but again, with a process in place where Fauci and Collins would have to sign off to say, well, look, uh, this is worth doing. It's, it's worth the risk. And I did a search of the NIH report or something like, you know, a, a, a dozen or a, almost 20, someone 12 to 20, a whole bunch of, uh, of large grants were funded on, if you match the search terms, coronavirus and gain of function between 2014 and 2020. So this is something that the, the NIH had participated, in, including funding the gain of function work by, uh, by, by EcoHealth Alliance, who had cooperated and funded the work with the Wuhan lab. When this epidemic came up, I don't know that that research led to this virus. I mean, I just don't have any insight into that. And I don't think anyone is ever going to know that until the Chinese authorities open up their, their, their uh, records. But I think uh, what, what, what was clear was that uh, Dr. Fauci and a number of other people who participated in this research were very, very concerned that people would think that the gain of function work they had funded and supported uh, was somehow in any way related to this epidemic. And they got together and they put, they, they, and there were, there were people that had looked at the viral sequences, RNA sequence, and found certain aspects of it uh, that, that looked like it was, you know, part, wouldn't, wouldn't have come out of nature. Uh, I, I can go to the technical details, but like the, there's this furin cleavage site, this, uh, this the doublet of, of codons that, uh, that, that don't normally appear. I, 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 this is not my exact area. I've talked to biochemists around, about, you know, biologists around this who, work on this and they've mentioned this to me, but that as, as suspicious. And I think that, that that discussion was happening even in March, 2020. Fauci and uh, uh, Jeremy Farrar at the Welcome Trust and a few other people uh, in the Fauci's emails, he, they, they, he acknowledges they got together, arranged a meeting, and then very quickly, The Lancet published a paper that said, no, no, this is not gain of function research. That, that, this, that this, this had to have come out of, of a, you know, sort of a natural evolutionary environment probably from bats, and it's conspiracy theory suggest otherwise. And they absolutely viciously suppressed any discussion around that. Uh, I think that was like published in late, in late March 2020 or April 2020. And let um, me so say that I think as Fauci was having these 
discussions and trying to make this sound like a conspiracy theory, he had an obligation he didn't fulfill to disclose that he his agency was involved in funding of the very research at issue. I mean, I think at least he owed that to explain or to let people understand his own interest in us thinking there's one outcome or, a, or another outcome. But he, to my knowledge, didn't ever discuss that as he was trying to uh, make people think it couldn't possibly have come from the lab. Yeah, I mean, I think he I mean, I think he was very upset when Rand Paul brought that up almost uh, almost a year later, I think, in congressional testimony from Fauci. But I, I, I mean, I, 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 that's basically what I know. And that's all based on public public released information. I, I don't know anything else beyond behind the scenes on this. I mean, it, if, if it in fact is something that came out of a lab leak, like let's say mistaken gain of mistakenly or unwisely supported gain of function research, um, I mean, that's going to have really important implications for how we think about this epidemic. You can understand like it'll, there'll be a lot of people who share the blame that, that, that uh, about, about this, if that, if that in fact is what ends up, uh, we conclude is what caused this epidemic. So forwarding fastly, fast forwarding to today, there is so much discussion about vaccine passports and a booster shot and a new formulation. I want to talk a little bit about that, but I think the thing that's glaring to a lot of people who have done a little bit of reading is an almost absent discussion about protection from natural immunity if you've been infected. And I'm certainly not suggesting it's a wise strategy for people to try to get infected. And I absolutely understand that certain people, when they do get COVID, get very ill and some people die. But the truth is the vast majority, all the data shows, survives. And from what I've read, and I gathered a bunch of studies about this, there, there are more as time goes on, the immunity that people are left with after they've recovered from COVID, even mild cases, is quite good, but never factored in when the government talks about protection. They may say, for example, well, this state only has X percent vaccinated, therefore it's very dangerous. And I'm thinking, well, maybe 50 percent are vaccinated in that state. But what if another 30 percent or 40 percent have recovered from COVID? Doesn't that change the picture? And why isn't the government acknowledging or talking about natural immunity? And why do they still say that those people should get vaccinated anyway? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the denial of natural immunity started almost at the very beginning of the epidemic. I, I, I um, remember when I was organized or helping organize these seropollen studies, one of the things that the, the institution review boards, the human subjects boards insisted on is when we tell people about the what the meaning of a positive antibody test was in March 2020, we, we shouldn't tell them that if you get a positive antibody, it means that you're, that you're immune. Uh, and, you know, actually that was kind of reasonable in March, 2020, because we just didn't know for certain that the antibodies that were produced by infection would provide immunity. And certainly not for long lasting immunity. Um, but by the late summer or middle of summer of 2020, there were increasingly large, I mean, good studies coming out, published in places like Cell and Nature, establishing all kinds of mechanisms of, of natural immunity. It became pretty clear that we, that if you were infected and recovered, even by the let's say June, July of 2020, that that they would that you you would produce protection against the disease, at the very least protection against severe reinfections, um, and 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 uh, that became really clear as you looked at the data. It took months and months before the first identified reinfection was found, and that was, if I remember correctly, in somebody who only knew he'd been reinfected because he had a test to travel. 
and was asymptomatic with what could have been a different strain or variant or something. So it was not a serious case. Yeah, so it wasn't. I mean, that's, and that's fairly typical. This, that reinfection tends to be much less severe or less severe than the initial infection. That's uh, not always the case, but that's, that's typically the case. Um, and, uh, you know, now a year and a half on, I mean, I think uh, the reinfection rate, even a year and a half on is something on the order of 1%. I mean, it's pretty, pretty complete. Uh, For those who've had COVID-19 and recovered. Right. So, I mean, natural immunity absolutely has played an enormously important role in the dynamics of the epidemic and also the risk that people face after they get infected. Uh, but I, uh, Cheryl, I completely agree with you that you shouldn't aim at getting infected in order to get, that's why I think the vaccine, when I saw the vaccine, actually, I kind of celebrated because here it provided a mechanism for people who are at high risk from bad outcomes if they get infected, like uh, elderly people, uh, to avoid having to get infected in order to get immunity, right? That's the, that, in fact, that's what the vaccines, have, I think, are good for. It, it provides immune uh, protection against severe disease, especially important for the vulnerable populations. At the same time, it, I don't think that the vaccines provide protection against all infection. If you get the vaccine within just a two or three months, it looks like it, you, you can still become infected again. So in that sense, it's less complete than natural immunity. So let's, let's you asked about vaccine passports. Let's jump to that idea. Well, what's the, what's the underlying reason actually for them? The underlying reason supposedly is that it provides a guarantee that a vaccinated person can come to a place where other vaccinated people are and they face very little risk. Or maybe the, the, the reasoning is that because, because vaccinated people don't spread the disease would be the, would be the reasoning, right? Or an unvaccinated person, why would you exclude them? Because they, they, they can spread the disease. Well, if the vaccines don't protect against disease spread, there really isn't that big of a difference as far as disease spread risk is goes between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Um, you know, after after a few months, the main purpose of the vaccine is to protect against uh, severe disease. Well, that's a personal benefit to the person that's vaccinated. It's not a public benefit to everyone around them because they can still harbor and spread the disease. Um, in fact, I think CDC said in their paper about a Massachusetts cluster of cases. Tell me if this is a correct understanding. That viral load, which measures a person's infectability in part, appears to be about the same in vaccinated and unvaccinated people. So that that would seem to say if you're vaccinated and you're carrying the virus, as many people are, you're you're no better off in terms of infecting other people than someone who's unvaccinated. Yeah. So what is the purpose of a vaccine passport in that context? It's just it's all it is, is at this point complete is discriminatory. The set of people who were infected and recovered are actually during the epidemic, they tend to be the essential workers, the people who, you know, working class people, relatively poor people, um, minorities are overrepresented. You have a vaccine passport. In New York, I saw some statistic that apparently 60% of, 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 uh, of black New Yorkers were, uh, were, are not vaccinated. That's not unreasonable if they were, if they were pro- previously infected and recovered, why do they need the vaccine really? I mean, it's only a March small benefit if you've given infection recovered to getting the vaccine, as far as like immunity goes. So they're doing the rational thing. Um, and yet now 60% of the, them are going to be excluded from, you know, restaurants from potentially from all, all kinds of other activities that would, that would normally New Yorkers would be able to do. It's just discriminatory and, and it doesn't serve any public health purpose other than to undermine confidence in public health. CDC estimated some time ago that over 120 million Americans had been exposed to COVID-19 and, you know, recovered or 
they're better now, or maybe never even had symptoms. That's a huge number. I think the number is actually quite a bit bigger now because this was a while ago. So again, um, people who've had COVID, a lot of them know this story about natural immunity and are wondering why public health officials who are educated in this science are pretending it doesn't exist or are telling them that they should still be excluded from places while vaccinated people who are getting COVID in some cases should be allowed. It just, why aren't more public health officials who know better factoring in or addressing natural immunity? I don't know the answer to why they're not doing it. I mean, it's, 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 they, they basically have denied natural immunity almost from the beginning of the epidemic and still, and still continue to do so despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And it's huge implications, as you say, Cheryl, like the, if so many people are in fact, have been infected and recovered, that means the risk of getting COVID from lots of people at a risk of get, getting and getting, having severe reaction to COVID is much less than much of the population. We're seeing this now actually in the data. Uh, you're seeing cases go up in many places uh, it, not just in the United States, but all around the world. Um, and the the death rate is lower. The case fatality rate is lower than it was by a long shot compared to March of 2020, because many of the people that are getting it are, 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 are protected against severe disease, either by the vaccine or by, uh, or by natural immunity. I read yesterday that some information came from health officials or maybe a statistical group at a UK academic institution that even when they're COVID cases had gone up, the fatality rate, I guess it would be the case fatality rate, had gone down from a peak in January of one point something to fractional, you know, maybe 0.2 or 0.1 something. So it was really different now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very different disease than it was in March 2020. Uh, public health should start t- telling people that. This is not anymore something to fear and panic. I don't think it should have been a cause for fear and panic in March 2020. Um, but certainly now it's a very different disease, at least, I mean, di- very different epidemic, I should say, uh, than, than it was in March of 2020. After a short break, Dr. Bhattacharya is going to address RSV, the controversy over masks, ADE, and COVID in children. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely a big reason why Trello is top rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. We're back now with more from Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Can you tell us what antibody dependent enhancement ADE is. I've tried to read up on that myself. It was, well, let me just say a little about it, let you explain it better. But it seems to be the notion that has occurred in the past, a phenomenon with some vaccines in which if I have this right, it, a vaccine may protect against the initial iteration of a virus and then somehow make the vaccinated people more susceptible to a more dangerous form or iteration of the virus later. Is, is that true? And are we seeing any evidence of that? 
I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's close. It's not exact. I mean, the, the, the key thing in antibody dependent enhancement is that the vaccine produces antibodies that don't actually protect against infection, but in fact, make infection worse. Uh, so like the classic case is dengue fever. The, there was a vaccine that was tried, I think in the Philippines, that when it was given, uh, it actually, when the patients got infected with dengue, it made, uh, it made them worse. It didn't, it was the opposite of protection. It actually harmed them. So uh, antibody-dependent enhancement is a theoretical possibility in, in, in any vaccine development effort. Um, and uh, there's, there's different mechanisms I can get into, but it's not really the, the key thing. The key important thing is you, you get the vaccine and instead of when you're challenged with the virus, you're protected against it or severe disease from it. Instead, you are, uh, you are, it, it, it enhances the, the effect of the virus, making it worse, making the disease you get from the virus worse in the vaccinated population. That's what it is. Uh, in, I mean, that's that's the classically what it is. The question that when people started developing the vaccine, people worried about that in this in this context. Uh, the how would it show up? It would show up by you vaccinate somebody with this COVID virus a vaccine, and when they uh, at, at the vaccinated population then will die at higher rates than the unvaccinated. That's how would it would show up if we're present. But the opposite happened in the trials. In fact, the rate at which people a died uh, was lower if you got vaccinated by quite a lot. So that's good. Yeah. So it didn't, it, if, it, if it's happening, it's some biochemical level, it's not showing up in the macro data that to me, that's the most important thing. I, I will say this. So like initially I thought from the evidence of the vaccine data and, and from the trials that the vaccines would protect against disease spread. That turned out to be very short-lived. And there's some concern that the, the antibodies that, 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 that are produced by the vaccines they kind of disappear fast or might, and some people have actually argued that they maybe actually enhance the pop probability of infection. I mean, I suppose it's theoretically possible. What I'm seeing in the data is, not, and, and the thing that I think is most important is that there's this decoupling of cases and deaths. Cases in places that are heavily vaccinated, cases go up, but deaths don't go up nearly as much as they would have last year in an unvaccinated population. That's evidence against a the, any macro level impact of antibody dependent enhancement. You you would have expected that deaths would actually go up relative to uh, what it was last year if ADE was a really important phenomenon in the data. But that's not what I'm currently seeing. I'm seeing instead a decoupling of cases and deaths. In the UK, it's dramatic. Iceland dr dramatic. Sweden uh, the vaccine. I mean, it's very dramatic decoupling of cases and deaths. Even in in um, Florida, where the decoupling is is somewhat incomplete, but still it's still there many fewer deaths per case than it was. And you, and you, you reflected it in the, in, your, in the statistic you cited. The case fatality rate going down is evidence against antibody defense enhancement because that's deaths per case, right? That's gone down. If ADE or antibody dependent enhancement is happening, would it, would it be assumed that it's also happening in people who are getting COVID naturally? In other words, same things happening with their antibodies. So if, if it's happening in vaccines, is it also happening in the natural environment or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Because the, the set of, of immune responses you get from natural infection, I mean, they're related to, but, but broader than the set of immune responses you get from the vaccine. The vaccine presents a, a small set of, of uh, you know, like the virus, let's just consider the virus as like one long RNA sequence. The vaccine presents small chunks of the proteins produced by the, like maybe less, you know, 0.1%, I don't know the exact number, but like a very small fraction of the, of the proteins produced by the, uh, by the RNA sequence. 
Uh, whereas the your body, when it reacts to COVID in natural immunity, responds to a much broader set of those epitopes. Um, so it you you don't wouldn't necessarily expect that the that if you got ADE in one context, you'd get it in the other. And it's it's clear that you're not getting ADE from natural immunity. I mean, people have less severe infections on reinfection. You would expect the opposite if there's ADE with natural infection. And, and so I don't think that I don't think that's a concern. And frankly, I'm less. I'm not. I'm not so concerned about ADE in the context of the vaccine. Uh, I mean, I am concerned a little bit about how long the vaccine protection lasts. I think the vaccine protection against infect all infection doesn't last very long. Whereas, I, as best I can tell, the protection against severe disease seems to last, you know, uh, eight eight months, nine months. I mean, however long it's, it's been. If it wanes, then then we may need to start thinking about boosters. I think the by the way, I think the Biden administration jumped the gun on the boosters. We don't have any trial data on boosters, and um, we don't have. I mean, I don't, I don't, I just don't understand how they. The FDA hasn't cleared it. There's a lot of steps that you would normally go through before you start talking about uh, approving these kinds of interventions, which I think the Biden administration jumped the gun on when they announced about boosters. Well, back to passports. I guess people who think that somehow is protective that someone has shown they've complied with vaccine recommendations, they're going to have to be checked on their dates and see once boosters come into effect, did they get the booster after eight months? Or in the case, if they're immunocompromised, that's already a recommendation for a booster. So I guess they should technically disclose to the restaurant if they're immunocompromised and did they get their eight month later booster and so on. I mean, it just, it doesn't seem to make no, a lot just, of sense. It multiplies the, the, the cost of participating in normal life uh, for no real public health purpose. And as we just talked about, it's discriminatory. I mean, Cheryl, the, 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 a third dose for, I mean, I can understand for immunocompromised, there might be some medical case to make there, but for, for the most of the population, a third dose, if that doesn't, that only provides marginal, better protection against uh, severe disease, maybe no, no better protection, severe disease, um, instead of using these doses in you know, poor countries worldwide, where there really still are quite a lot of older people who uh, face high risk if they were to get infected, I, I just don't think it's right. If you really want to save lives, you send those doses to you know, Bolivia, to India, to wherever, wherever there's places where um, the, there's still lots of older people that, that are at high risk. Um, the third dose wouldn't, I don't, I just, and, and especially to link it to a vaccine passport, it, it just makes no public health sense to me. Before we leave ADE entirely, the Journal of Infection published a study recently. Again, me being a non-scientist, but I've read thousands and thousands of articles over the years and gotten to be a little bit informed in how to read and what to make of it. And it sounded concerned to me. It certainly wasn't alarming, but I don't know if you saw that article. Yeah, but- it was a model. It was a modeling study, I think, right? Um, of of like uh, of of what the what the uh, I'm trying to remember the study. If I'm trying to remember the details of the study, it was like well, I think it said something like there was a striking affinity for what I would call the reinf- a reinfection with a another strain of COVID later. That that what they were seeing were signs or modeling, as you said, that there could be a concern with ADE and vaccinated people, and they were recommending. It looked to me like we consider formulating an entirely different vaccine to answer that problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm much more persuaded by macro real world data of what actually happens. Um, so like we were talked about before, it, it, it's a theoretical possibility. And I can, I can I recognize that there's a lot of uh, very talented immunologists concerned about that as a theoretical possibility. 
ADE as a theoretical possibility. I, I, I just have not seen it in the macro data. And to me, that's the most important thing. I, I will say this, like Cheryl, I think, I think the how we use the vaccine, given that this is a theoretical possibility and it's a concern, how we use the vaccine, we should think very carefully about, uh, about right? So the, the push in public health has been to like universally vaccinate everybody. Well, the personal cost benefit sort of uh, from vaccinating a young child with this vaccine for whom COVID is not actually that severe of a risk where, and that means that even small amounts of side effects would lead you to say, no, don't do that. Whereas someone who's older, very, very high risk if they get COVID, you accept some, some more uncertainty around the side effects and some of the other possible negative effects of the vaccine because the, the damage from COVID is so high. So I think the right way to use the vaccine is in service of pro focused protection. Use it to protect the vulnerable um, because otherwise they face a high risk of COVID. For the rest of the population, don't force people to take it. That, I mean, especially given the uncertainty around so many of the things we've been discussing. Well, let's talk about children because I think if you were just watching the news in the past month or so, you would conclude based on what's being reported that right now children are dying in pretty significant numbers compared to the past and getting sick. And it's become a very serious threat to many, many children who are going to be at risk at school if they're not vaccinated and wearing masks and so on. Um, but then if you read other data, it looks like children are still at very low risk of serious problems with COVID, almost statistically zero for death. What is what are people to make of what's going on now with all these debates? And what do you think about the mask debate? OK, so on, on children, I, I, I think that the date that there's no evidence that I've seen that suggests that COVID is a high risk for children. It just is not. Uh, last year, more children died of the flu, even though the flu disappeared and we had a vaccine for the flu last year. Um, and, and so and more children died of the flu last year than COVID. Uh, in, in, um, in the same is true this year in the data. Now, what has happened with children is that there's, this, there's a virus called the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. And that mostly disappeared last year in, in, uh, in around in many parts of the world. That's actually quite dangerous for children. Not, that doesn't really harm adults, but it's really quite dangerous for children. You had a year where children weren't exposed to it, and now they get, they get exposed again, or they get exposed for the first time when they're a little bit older. Uh, they're immune naive, and you actually get bad reactions to it. And so I think a lot of the hospitalizations of children have to do with the lockdowns. We protected them against RSV by keeping them at home, keeping them away from their friends, um, their daycares, and so on. And now they're, now they're getting exposed to it with sort of deadly consequences. I, I, I think this is a lockdown harm, the explosion of RSV cases. Uh, I, and it has me more, more worried for children than the exposure to COVID. COVID is still, from the, all the data I've seen, still quite uh, a benign illness in children. It, it's not that it can't hurt you, but I think there's uh, very, uh, vanishingly few ch healthy children have, had, have died from COVID. Almost, almost every child that's died from COVID has had some severe pre-existing condition. Well, let me mention something about getting COVID as a child that reminds me of something that my daughter's doctor, when she was young, told me when she was getting her vaccines, um, chickenpox vaccine was invented about the time my daughter was at that age, a few years old. And the first year it was out, it wasn't required at school. Her doctor said, I'd rather her get chickenpox than have the vaccine because the vaccine 
may not last very long. And if it just puts off her getting chicken pox till she's older, when chicken pox is more dangerous, I think she's better getting exposure to chicken, real chicken pox when she's younger and skipping the vaccine. Well, the next year it became required and we got it, but that always stuck in my mind. And I kind of wonder, are kids better off theoretically, not that we want people to be infected. I'm not suggesting that again. Do we want kids if the alternative is getting infected when they're older and they may be sicker or the, the alternative is them getting infected now when it may be asymptomatic and very mild, isn't it better for them of the two to have it now and have natural immunity that may be really long lasting? Yeah. I mean, that is the, that's exactly how other, the other coronaviruses work. You get it. Anyone that's had kids has had this experience. The kids come home from daycare or from preschool or whatever, and they bring all the, 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 the germs with them. Right. And then, and parents spend, uh, you know, several years uh, be, becoming reacquainted with colds again. Um, I mean, that, 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 that actually is actually a healthy thing, especially for the kids. The kids get exposed to these coronaviruses when they are young and it produces almost no, no, uh, nothing other than sniffles. And then when they're older, they are protected against severe disease that would have happened if they weren't, were immune naive to those, co- those same coronaviruses. That is the uh, likely long-term outcome from COVID. It'll turn into a fifth circulating coronavirus uh, in the human population. Uh, there's some uh, interesting historical information for data for sh- suggesting that when um, OC43, which is this like uh, circulating coronavirus first entered the human population, I think in the ni- late 19th century in Russia, it produced an enormous epidemic, but now it's just a circulating cold. Um, and that that the the proceed the 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 the, the, uh, the the outcome that you said, which is exactly what happened with it, I think, is children just get exposed to OC forty three when they're little. Um, it doesn't produce a very severe result, and because of that, they get immunity so that when they're exposed to it later in life, maybe multiple times later in life, because you get multiple times you get a cold, um, it it doesn't produce severe disease. I think that is uh, that is likely the likely longer term outcome with COVID as well. Well, it makes me wonder if. If people think they're supposed to keep their kids from getting exposed at all by wearing masks, keeping them isolated and vaccinating them with a vaccine that doesn't last very long, are you just making it where their immune systems eventually when they do get exposed down the road, if they can't stay unexposed for the next you know, 70 years, that they're going to get hit harder or that it's worse for them at that point? I mean, I guess I'd worry more about that, Cheryl, if, if I thought that, the, that all these interventions like masks and, and lockdowns were particularly effective at stopping disease spread. And as we've seen it, they, they really aren't. Um, I mean, short of like draconian things like what New Zealand is doing or whatever or China did, you know, locking people in their house, um, most of these interventions are not particularly effective. People will get exposed whether we want to stop it or not. Something sticks in my mind I wanted to get your comment on about isolating at home. When Governor Cuomo, one of the last news conferences he gave, he gave that was carried on national television in the spring of 2020, he announced that a really large percent, a vast majority of cases in the hospital for COVID at that time were among people that had reported isolating at home or were in a congregate setting like nursing home. And he said, we're going to have to figure out why that is. And he noted that It was not homeless people. It was not people living outside and being outside. And I never heard much more about that, although I think there was some kind of admission a year later by CDC that cases are almost never transmitted outdoors, or at least there's not evidence of it. 
but did we just make a huge blunder by shutting down parks and beaches and arresting the guy surfing out in the surf by himself in California when that's what everybody, what more people should have been doing? Yeah, that was an enormous blunder. An absolutely catastrophic mistake, especially the nursing homes, right? So the first indication of, of, of uh, one of the first indications of COVID in the United States was that nursing home in, in Washington state where the infection proved so deadly. Instead of taking a lesson from that, which is that those kind of congregate settings and indoor spread were really quite dangerous, we decided uh, in the early days of the epidemic that what was necessary was to spare hospital beds, maybe because we looked at Italy and saw overwhelmed hospital systems. So we emptied out hospitals, uh, nursing homes, uh, you know, New York famously, but also I think New Jersey, Pennsylvania, a few other states sent the nursing infected COVID patients back to nursing homes in order to clear hospital beds. And uh, with absolutely devastating results, much of the, the, the reason why the highest, the highest per capita death from COVID are, uh, states are still New York and New Jersey is because of that mistake. Enormous numbers of people that didn't need to die, died as a result of uh, essentially a, a, an intellectual error, thinking that what was necessary, what was scarce was hospital beds rather than what was scarce was uh, focused protection of the vulnerable. Well, nursing homes aside, I'll tell you what a, another scientist who's proven quite spot on like you have on many things told me early on. Um, tell me if my understanding of this is correct. He said, isolating at home, where if you have any exposure, but you're going to sit and breathe the same air of somebody for eight hours, 10 hours, 24 hours is much riskier than leaving your house. And he used an example of going to work where you're not going to stand at somebody's desk typically and talk to them for an hour. You're going to, you know, breeze by and talk for minute or two or make a comment. He led me to believe fairly early on that these casual passings, um, leaving the house and so on is, is better. And I wonder if that's why they noted this problem from people who had reported isolating at home with so many of them in the hospital. I, I think he's completely right. That's 100% true. I think the, um, I, I can give you an extreme example of this, right? So in, in Mumbai, India, there's a slum district called the Dharavi slums. Uh, a friend of mine did a seroprevalence study in Mumbai where he compared the, the prevalence of the disease in July of last year, 2020, uh, versus uh, in, in, this, in the slums versus the rest of Mumbai. In the slums, the living conditions are extremely crowded, you know, 10, 11, a, a huge numbers of people within a household. They had a, a, no, a lockdown in the early days of the epidemic that forced so many poor people to go live in essentially very crowded living conditions and not go outside for risk of getting arrested or, or fined or something. What, what my friend who ran the study found is that there was a, a I think it was like a 60 or 70% prevalence of the disease in the slums during the lockdown. The disease was spread during the lockdown in, inside very crowded homes, whereas the rest of the rest of the uh, Mumbai was like 20%. Forcing people back in their homes, paradoxically, I think may actually have made the disease spread more. So a couple final points that I was hoping you could address. I've been listening and watching some of my colleagues report with, I think, far less information than, well, with I know in some cases, far less information than I've gotten digging around and talking to varied scientists. But they seem to all be giving medical advice. And the medical advice typically falls along the lines of everybody should get vaccinated. They kind of cheer on if they find somebody did. They kind of chide if somebody didn't, regardless of knowing whether 
the person has a previous infection and is, is presumed immune or not, or has any other issues. What do you make of this sort of one-sided reporting when it comes to very important medical issues that the press suddenly, maybe not so sudden the last couple of years, but I'll say suddenly reports only one side and only certain facts and deems the contrary data and science and viewpoints to be dangerous and something that can't be discussed, let alone advocated or aired on television. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I can give you my personal experience. I mean, before this epidemic, I did had almost no exposure to the press, uh, and um, I, I, I frankly would like to go back to that. I, I mean, I, with you, except to Cheryl, of course. I mean, but I think like I had a I, I wrote this Great Barrington Declaration arguing for focus protection of the vulnerable. And uh, the, 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 the document discussed uh, sort of the rest of the population, the lockdown harms, the harms of the lockdowns, the rest of the population arguing that the lockdown harms are devastating, which I think all of this is true. And it discussed herd immunity because, you know, how else do you talk about the, the long run of this epidemic without talking about herd immunity? Uh, almost immediately after we released it, there was this sort of concerted press effort, uh, in part egged on by people like Dr. Fauci, who propagandized and said, look, uh, these guys want the disease to let it rip through society. The words let it rip do not appear in the document. The, the heart of the Great Barrington Declaration is the pr focus protection of the vulnerable. If, if the claim is that you by a public health official that you can't protect the vulnerable, well, they should just come out and say so uh, because it's, it's wrong and you, people will be laughed out of the room. Instead, they, the, the, uh, the public health authorities decided to mischaracterize the, 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 the document as a let it rip strategy and then used, uh, used the press to essentially echo that, uh, that, that, that message and deplatform anyone who, who argued in favor of focus protection. It, it was an absolutely remarkable thing to me to essentially see a propaganda campaign. And that's in the United States. And in, in the UK, there was explicitly a, a propaganda campaign uh, at, that by, by the government itself, which wanted to defend its lockdown policies that it adopted. You cannot have a, a reasoned discussion about what the right strategy is in, a, in a, an environment like this if you shut out a whole class of people who disagree with you, especially uh, scientists and experts who disagree. T hundreds of thousands of people signed the Great Barrington Declaration. Tens of thousands of doctors and scientists signed it. Um, there's no consensus. And the idea that there was a consensus was, was essentially an element of propaganda, I think. Well, I've written of this in books and I've done stories about this talking with other scientists over the years. This certainly may be the most blatant example of scientists being controversialized and deplatformed for simply having data and viewpoints that differ from the narrative, but it's, it's not the first time. I, I guess when I started covering, getting assigned to cover medical issues when I was an investigative reporter at CBS News, I knew nothing of this, but I quickly learned that when scientists go off the public health narrative, they have their grants pulled from them so they can't have funding. They get pressure from their academic institutions. They're controversialized in the press. There's pressure to retract their studies. I think people don't fully understand unless they've read some of this, what science goes through, what honest scientists have happened to them simply for being part of a valid scientific discussion. And I think it's been really a serious problem that my industry, the press, has failed at because we're supposed to be the ones asking the questions, not simply taking the propaganda. I mean, certainly doesn't mean everything the government says is is wrong any more than it means they're right. But there are many viewpoints, particularly when there's evolving science, as there almost always is. And it's up to us, I think, 
to read, research more, whether we think we know enough to agree or not to air different viewpoints and make sure that it's all out there. I think we wouldn't have made a lot of the mistakes we've made the past year if the press had done a better job of uh, representing you know, views in a wholesome way. I, I completely agree with you, Cheryl. I, I think that there is a responsibility of the press. I mean, I, actually, uh, frankly, I think that it, the, 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 the general press has been more open you know, to, 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 to views and partly because I think there's this adversarial, like, you know, left, right thing within the general press than the science press has been. The science press was absolutely terrible on this, you know, scientific American, uh, a whole bunch of like scientific science reporters have, have sort of enforced this party line. I've gotten a lot of emails, uh, you know, since I, I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration from scientists who signed it and others, uh, some who've like thank me for a lot of sort of giving them permission to speak up effectively. But a lot of them telling me that they have silenced themselves for fear of, of, of repercussions, exactly along as you suggest, like, you know, pulled grants. Um, and that's actually happened. People have been fired because they signed the declaration. People have lost their, lost their, their ability, uh, their lost invitations to work on projects with colleagues, um, have been marginalized within their departments. It's a, it's a career risk to say what you think, apparently now in science. Well, I'd like to thank you for being out there because it's not easy to put yourself out there with information that's factual, but not necessarily in line with what some other people are saying. And I'd like to close by asking you, or I guess commenting on all the travels that I've, con- I've done in the last year and a half or so. And I've gone to many places that again, I've shown some of these on TV, but you don't see them widely represented. While the cities are sometimes inundated with really bad cases of coronavirus, much of America is living what I would call a fairly normal life where they went back to school. There are cities I've been to fall of the year COVID was going on. So that would be fall of 2020 with they played school sports. They had no inordinate spike spikes. I've been to many places, obviously, mostly cities that have a lot of bad COVID. But I've also I happen to live in a place where I don't personally know anybody in my neck of the woods that died of COVID, got sick of COVID, or even tested positive COVID. So I don't know if it's yet to come in some areas or it's because these are rural settings. But I don't know. What's your comment on the notion that there are big swaths of America living kind of normal lives while we're watching on TV what's going on in a lot of big cities? I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right, Cheryl. I think in many parts of the, of, of, uh, the United States, the, 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 the epidemic is done. It's not that the disease is gone. The disease is still, still around. Uh, I think all of America should be like this at this point. We have actually done, I mean, if you think about it from a, from a point of view of like technically what we've done is remarkable. We've produced a vaccine that, and deployed it among the vulnerable in record time relative to other epidemics. Um, the, the, the disease is defanged. Uh, we should be celebrating. Instead, uh, you know, San Francisco is, is still locked down. Uh, it's not clear that the children will be able to go, go to in-person school there again. Um, at least not without like, you know, multiple masks or something. I mean, it's, it's uh, a, a huge numbers of people around the country are living free. Um, it's a disease, it's a disease we have to learn to live with. It's not that it's, it, I mean, it's, it's not that it's nothing. It's obviously something it's, it's, it's killed so many people, but at the same time uh, to organize all of our life around infection control and not just any infection control, infection control of a single disease is folly. And we have to, we have to, and looking at, you know, Sweden has not had a single COVID death, I think in a month and they living completely open, you know, with, with, so I think it's one of these things where like, 
uh, it's very easy to get stuck in your own little bubble if you live in a you know big blue city to thinking that this is what normal life is ever going to be like. But in fact, much of the world, if many parts of the world have freed themselves from the sort of COVID lockdowns and have come out, come out the other side looking like that's the much better way to live. We, we have sort of two paths to choose from. One path is what you just described, essentially a free, free, free freedom. Um, uh, while we still worry about the COVID, about uh, like as a medical problem, we don't, we don't like reorganize life around it. Or we live life like uh, Australia, where every, every, every few days, one COVID case comes up and we shut down, the, shut down our life for a very long time. I think those are the, very starkly, those are the, that's, the, that's the choice we face. Well, my hope is that as we hear of spiking case counts reported as if it's something that's the worst thing that's ever happened, and certainly it is for people who get very, very ill or who pass away. But the flip side of that is those are more people in that city, and we almost never mention who are presumably immune afterwards. So these cities are becoming safer, theoretically, as they have these spikes in cases, and maybe we do come out the other end better off sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've dragged this out for such a long time um, with very bad. I mean, essentially, what we've done with these lockdowns is is uh, something my colleague Martin Kuldorf likes to call the a let it drip strategy. We've instead of letting it rip, we've let it drip, and we've infected so many older older people. As a result, we, you you can only do lock locking away people for a certain amount of time before people get fatigued or, around it. They have to live their life, and we've instead of taking a strategy that aims at protecting the vulnerable, letting people live their normal life. We've tried to like protect, we block everyone away. And the consequences, we end up infecting the vulnerable while still getting all these horrible lockdown harms. It's the worst of both worlds. That was Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Visit CherylAxon.com and look under the health tab, and you're going to find a lot of otherwise difficult to find information about COVID-19 on natural immunity versus vaccine immunity, on COVID-19 origins, fact versus rumor, vaccine analysis of common adverse events, and a definitive summary of COVID-19 vaccine concerns broken down by illness, country, and vaccine type. The good thing about these articles I've written, they have scientific studies cited, they have links to the studies. So the information is not conjecture, it's not speculation, it's not trying to force a particular viewpoint down your throat. Again, that's at CherylAckison.com under the tab that says health. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Share it with your friends. Leave me a great review and listen for my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. It was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got, he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with MyPillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. 
For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into Springtown. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those My Slippers. You gotta have them. They're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800 800- 951-3715 and use the promo code just news when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715. Use the promo code just news. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. Our heart is growing. Want to fly to Syracuse? Upstate has it all. Southwest is now selling nonstop service to Syracuse Hancock International Airport. With Southwest, You can enjoy low fares with two bags free and no change or cancel fees. Only at Southwest.com. Big heart, low fares. Book your Southwest flight today from Syracuse Hancock International Airport. Book now at Southwest.com. 